Well, we are uh, in week three now of what has become a challenging um, series of discussions about the elephant in the family room. They have been challenging um, in our family room, uh, as you know, Joan and I are working through these same things. Maybe if you are, and we're taking them seriously and trying to work through them together, and had a little date night the other night, and we're out at uh, this restaurant going through stuff that we talked about. And, um, so yeah, we got them, and we're working our way through them. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're just joining us, the elephant in your family room, you know, is that thing, it's that dysfunction, it's that pain, it's that hurt um, that sits there uh, and destroys relationships, and, but nobody really knows how to deal with it or touch it, and so we just ignore it. And, and we've looked at a few things. You know, week one, we looked at how we all have them. Jesus' family had an elephant. Your family has elephants. And, and how, if, you, if they're left in the darkness, they metastasize, and they cause death. Death in relationships, death in marriages and in homes and in legacies and in hearts, and sometimes if it's the, if it's the wrong elephant, just plain old death. Um, last week, I, I tried to teach you two profound truths that, that I've learned um, over the years. Uh, the first was what Jesus' brother James taught us, right? What, what is it that's causing these elephants to develop? And a lot of times, it's just the stuff that's in me. The reason for the fight between me and my kids, or the, my, me and my wife, or me and my, and my brother and sister is not because they did something wrong. Often it's because I didn't get what I want. And then the other thing I tried to teach you last week was the most profound thing I've learned uh, in, in the last 25 years in, in, in relationships, uh, how not to bear elephants and then how to go and deal with the elephant once I've given birth to it, is to understand that I am dealing with a human being and what that means. And, and you haven't heard that you should go online and let's do it. I know a bunch of you were saying that the, the video this week stopped at 12 minutes. I think Tim's been able to fix that, hopefully. New Family and Church texted me last week and they said, hey, that was a really profound talk. I want to thank you for it. And I also want to thank you for my eighth grader who's walking around the house now every time he does something wrong, looking at me going, well, I'm just a human being. <laughs> so I said, well, I mean, the good news is he's listening in church. So I'm trying to ride the wave of where God's leading us because I know, I mean, I've been pastor at this church for a long time, and so I, at one level or another, and, and I know the thing that we struggle with most are these family relationships. So I, I'm trying to sense where God is calling us to, where he's, where he's moving so we can talk about these things. And I kind of feel like he's, he wants us to talk about specific relationships. So we're going to go through the marriage and parenting and siblings and, and try to deal with the elephants that are most commonly found in those relationships. But I want to start with today, the primary relationship, marriage. And I think if you're thinking about being married, these concepts are, apply. Um, so I think for the most part, you know, if you're getting into that kind of a relationship with a significant other, you can apply what we're talking about. Now, marriage, if you have been in one, uh, uh, maybe you're not no longer in one, you know that marriage is no laughing matter. Yet, there are more jokes written about marriage than any other relationship out there. May I offer you a couple just as we get started? Just to loosen the room up a little bit. One night, a man walks into a bar looking sad. The bartender asks the man what he wants. The man says, ah, just a beer. And the bartender asks the man, what's wrong? Why are you so down today? And the man said, ah, my wife and I, we got into a fight. And she said she wouldn't talk to me for a month. And the bartender said, so what's wrong with that? The man said, well, the month's up tonight. <laughs> and it was this little ditty. A wife got so mad at her husband, she had had it, she packed his bags, and she told him to get out. 
And as he walked to the door, she yelled, I hope you die a long, slow, painful death. He turned around and said, so you want me to stay? <laughs> Those aren't mine, dear, I want you to know that. Picked them up on the internet. But they touch on something which if we've been in, in one of these relationships, we know is true that marriage is, is profound. Marriage has the potential for incredible um, beauty and, and grandeur. Uh, it can be glorious, but it is, it's hard. It's the ultimate in human relationship. It's profound in meaning, but it's complex in nature. You know, God officiated at the first marriage. It was his idea, and he brings Adam and Eve together. And here's what the scripture teaches. When Adam first sees Eve, he actually breaks into to poem. It's not um, translated that way, so we often don't see it. But the way it was written, it was supposed to signify originally the significance of the event and the power of Adam's inner response to Eve. His, his literal words, as they're translated, are this, this time. Another translation said, this at last is everything I've been looking for. Now, marriage was created by God, and that was his idea. But that was pre-fall, and that is, if we're honest, an experience that many of us have missed out on. Now, if you've been alive, you know what's going on with the, the quote-unquote institution of marriage in our day and in our culture. Over the last 40 years, all of these leading marriage indicators have been in pretty steady decline. The divorce rate is nearly twice the rate it was in 1960. In 1970, 89% of all births, in 1970, essentially 90% of children that were born were born to married parents. Today, only 60% of children are born to married parents. More tellingly, in 1960, 72% of all adults were married. You ran into an adult outside on the street, you had a three in four chance that that person was in a marriage. But it's down to 50% in 2008. In fact, the entire cultural value of marriage is on the wane. For many millennials, and I know this because I have a couple in my house, there's a feeling, a general feeling, I, hopefully my kids will share this one, but there's a general feeling that marriage is not only something that's optional at best, but something that can be drudgerous at worst. Today, more than half of all people live together before getting married. In 1960, virtually no one did. One quarter of all unmarried women between the ages of 25 and 39 are currently living with a partner, and by their late 30s, over 60% will have done so. Now, there's lots of factors driving that, obviously. The first is the kind of the social taboo has long disappeared relative to premarital cohabitation. But more importantly, more importantly, there's an underlying thought that since marriages are so, and I've heard this from a lot of a lot of kids, since marriages are so fraught with failure, since I watched what my mom and dad went through, since I saw all of the arguing and the pain, since I read all about it and the preacher tells me how hard they are, I think this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give this relationship a test run prior to making any real commitments to it. 
Because in a sense, before going through all that, I want to actually see if we can be together before we really commit to being together. And it seems to make perfect sense. It's widely believed, especially um, by the generation right behind me. Um, trust me, most of your kids think that way. Here's the interesting thing about it. It seems to make sense, but it's not true. University, the University of Virginia, okay, not Liberty. The University of Virginia concluded in their publication uh, called the National Marriage Project that, quote, a substantial body of evidence now indicates that those who live together before marriage are more likely to break up after marriage, not less likely. In other words, it doesn't help. In fact, it might hurt. And so here's the deal. What happened? It used to be valued in here and out there, and now it seems to be on the wane, out there, and if I'm honest, in here. What I think is going on, what I think is underlying what's happening in the culture, in a sense what's happening out there, is the exact same thing that's happening in here. It's the exact same thing that's happening in your family room and my family room right now. Now look, there are lots and lots and lots of studies about what causes marital problems. I know you know. See, you know, there's nights where I'm on that side of the couch and, and Joan could be on this side of the couch and there, usually there's a laundry basket there, but it, it, can be, it can often be thought of as an elephant. And you know what those elephants are. Okay, if I was going to say to you, what is the number one thing? See, he doesn't want to be married. He got all scared, freaked out. <laughs> what is the number one thing that couples fight about? Money. Money, you all know it. How do you all know that? Number one thing we fight about. But that's not it. There's lots, there's lots of them. I could go through them, I mean, in no particular order. Uh, sex and intimacy, lots of fights about that. Work, kids, chores, and boredom. And see, I think the Bible speaks to all those topics. I might get to them a little bit next week. But, but, but there's, just like a fever is indicative of an underlying issue, so too are so many. I mean, you wouldn't take your kid if he had a fever and just dunk him in cold water and try to get it down and say he's okay. And sometimes I think we do that with marriage. We go, oh, you're, you're fighting about finances. Let us teach you how to handle your, 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 your finances better. Okay, but it didn't fix the problem. Now we're fighting about something else. I think there's something deeper here that needs to get looked at. Fighting about money or sex or the kids is the presenting problem for sure, but there's something deeper at the heart of the elephant on so many of our sofas. And ultimately, I think it's at the same thing that's the heart of why society is so confused about marriage at this point, why it seems to be going away. You see, there was a time, and it wasn't too long ago, that both the church and the culture shared a moral conviction about the benefits of marriage. The church over the centuries esteemed marriage, and so did the culture of having a purpose of creating a framework for, for a lifelong devotion and love between a husband and wife. It was held to be a solemn bond. It was designed to help each poor. Listen to this. There was a time when marriage was understood to provide uh, uh, and to help each party subordinate their individual impulses and interests in favor of the relationship. The church saw it as a, a reflection of God's love, and, and everyone agreed that it served the communal good. Marriage used to be seen by both society and the church as something that would be benefit the entirety of humanity. 
that it would create the kind of social stability where children could grow and thrive. And we know that's true. Look, look at what's going on in the inner city. You'll you see what happens as, 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 as marriage goes away. There was an understanding that marriage was, in many ways, a sacrifice where two people would come together, either of their own volition or perhaps the will and arrangement of their families. Having uh, two daughters, I'm big on the arranged marriage thing now. I wish we could move back to those days. What's interesting is most of the scriptures that are written about marriage are written to couples who are in arranged marriages. So the whole concept of romantic love needs to be thought through relative to that. But there was a time where the thought was that you were getting into a self-sacrificing relationship and you understood that ultimately that was what was best for you and, and for your kids and, and for the community. But something, see, you got to stick with me on this. Something really profound happened with the concept of marriage. I can't put my finger on what did it, but something profound happened to it maybe over the last hundred years or so. A new understanding of marriage began to take hold. And again, and again, Church, you need to be careful about this. It didn't just take hold out there. It took hold in here. It took hold in here. I was taught it. I lived it out. And, and this new understanding, or misunderstanding, as I think the case may be, is what I think is behind so much of our marital discord and, and discontent. Somewhere along the line, I shared with you this last week a little bit. Somewhere along the line, both in here and out there, we began to change what marriage was all about. Instead of it being a self-sacrificing relationship with hard-wrought benefits for ourselves and our kids and our culture, instead marriage became almost exclusively about me and my personal fulfillment. It became a means of achieving my own personal ends. I shared some of this with you last week, right? I wanted a wife. I wanted a pretty one. Got that. <laughs> I wanted a pretty one. I wanted a smart one. I just want to say I'm not going to keep saying yes to each of these so you don't. <laughs> I wanted a pretty one. I wanted a smart one. I wanted one that would look good like when I went out to the cocktail parties with, you know, at the office. I wanted one that would be a good partner for me on the path to fulfilling my dreams. But something happened on the way to fulfilling my dreams. I found out I didn't get a wife. You know what I got? If you were here last week, what I get? A human being with her own dreams and, and God's own purposes for her life. And so marriage, for so many of us, it was introduced to us about finding just the right person, the one that would complete us and fulfill us, the so-called soulmate. He's out there. I just have to find him. And when I do, it'll be bliss because he'll give me everything that I'm looking for. And so what happens is we go out and we try to find these, these people and we, and we go into marriages with ridiculously unrealistic expectations about how life is going to go and how compatible together we're going to be for like 50 and 60 years. And when you go into a relationship like that, when you go into a marriage relationship like that, there's two very big profound things that happen. Two things you realize quickly. Here's, here's the first one. There are no, this is a lie, this is not in the Bible, by the way, so I don't know, somehow it got adopted into the church that God has this perfect person out there for you. I don't, that's, God has a person. You know what he's got? He's got human beings out there. Okay, here's the deal. There are no perfectly compatible people. That's like a destructive myth. And when you buy into it, and all of a sudden, things aren't going all the well at home. You start to go, oh, I'm with the wrong person. See, here's the deal. Duke University has an ethics professor. 
And she made this point, or excuse me, he made this point. Quote, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment. They're necessary for me to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there's someone just right for us to marry, and if we look closely enough, we'll find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that, quote, we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the, the right person, give it a while, he or she'll change. Because marriage, if it is as big as we say it is, because marriage means that we're not the same people once we even get into it. The primary problem is this. It's learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. That's pretty brilliant. Tim Keller, in a great book on the meaning of marriage that he wrote, says this. Marriage brings you into more intense proximity to another human being. See, Keller's always stealing my stuff. I got to... Uh, Marriage brings you into more intense proximity to another human being, another broken, sinful human being, than any other relationship can. And so therefore, the moment you marry someone, you and your spouse begin to change in profound ways. And you can't know ahead of time what those changes are going to be. So you don't know. You can't know who your spouse will actually be in the future until you get there. This is so true. Joan and I met each other when we were kids. I was 18 years old. I didn't know who I was, let alone who she was. I wasn't comfortable in my own skin. I was trying to be something that she, she would like, and she was trying to be something I would like. And We went out to dinner. We were talking about these the other night, and I said, I'm 48 years old. If I'm very honest with you, I'm still wrestling at some level with who I really am myself, trying to figure out who you really are. Keller goes on to say, over the years, you will go through seasons in which you have to learn to love a person who you didn't marry. You see, Joan thought she was marrying an investment banker. <laughs> that was a tough break. <laughs> see, over the years, you have to go through these seasons, and you're going to have to learn to love a person who you didn't marry, who is something of a stranger. You're going to have to make changes that you don't want to make. And so will your spouse. The journey may eventually take you into a strong, tender, joyful marriage, but it is not because you married the perfectly compatible person. That person doesn't exist. And the second problem is this, and I can't get into it, but it's a deep and profound one. If you come into marriage looking for someone to complete you, to fulfill you, that will provide meaning for your future and safety and security, I can't tell you how I, I speak to a lot more women than I do men because men, you know, are all messed up. They don't like to talk about their stuff, but women will also come. And, and so, so many times what I see when marriages are coming apart is, is, is the wife will come in and, and she'll, she's losing. Well, I was, my identity was I was his wife and their mom and dad. And he left me and they grew up. And now I don't even know who I am. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Who's going to take care of me? See, when you come into marriage thinking that that's what you're getting, you're getting somebody who's going to provide for your future and your safety and your security and is going to love you uh, perfectly, you're asking them to do something, to give you something that they cannot give to you. You're asking them, in some cases, you're demanding that they be God. They are not God. 
And so here's what I would submit then. I would submit to you that the root cause for marital dysfunction, both out there and in here and in my family room, the root cause of the fever, the reason we fight over money and we fight over sex and we fight over the kids and we fight over the chores, the reason that marriages are, are the number one issues in church is this. We have, in the church and outside of the church, fundamentally and foundationally misunderstood the purpose of marriage. We looked for soulmates and completers and people with sexual chemistry and, and looks and, and people that would keep a nice home and, and cook a nice meal, people that came from a nice family. You know, one of the things that was, was taught to me, and I've actually done this, and now, you know, when you start to preach this stuff, you start to realize you're, you're own screwed up. I mean, there was this concept that was going around that I remember it being told, and how, men, maybe you've heard this told, if you want to know what she's going to turn out like, go look at the mother. <laughs> see, I see you nodding. Right? Because she might look hot at 22, but go check out what it's going to be at 52. And while you're there, have dinner because it'll tell you something about the cooking. <laughs> and, and so we come into marriage with this being the primary thought process. I got a checklist of all the things here that I need you to fulfill. It's almost like we're looking for a right car, in a sense. But after some amount of time, we feel like we wound up with a lemon. And the reason is you went into marriage thinking it was a vehicle for you to get to your own end. And that is never, ever what it was supposed to be. And is it possible, then, that this misunderstanding of the purpose of marriage is really what's at the center of so many of the elephants in our lives? Think about it, right? A misunderstanding of marriage. Money. We don't have enough. You need to get a job. You need to make more money. You need to stop spending so much money. He keeps his own. She hides our spending. Sex. I'm not attracted to him anymore. She doesn't look like she used to. I could go on. Is it possible, though, that if we could understand the purpose of marriage correctly, if we could, in a sense, find out what the key to it is, because maybe, if, maybe we just missed it. If we could figure out what the secret to it is, maybe we could unlock the treasure of what marriage was really created to be, and it would help us deal with these elephants? Because I think we can. If you've been with me, you know that I think it's important that we look at the Bible just as, not as a book of theology, but about application. Here's what I mean by that. The, the gospel, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, his substitutionary atonement for the sins of mankind, his grace and his forgiveness. What if that was something that you just didn't learn in Sunday school and you prayed a prayer and believed in? What if it was something you lived? So Paul tries to take these teachings of Jesus. Paul wrote most of the New Testament. And most, of the, most of the New Testament, if you don't know, are letters to different churches. And so Paul's trying to take these teachings of Jesus, these very difficult teachings about loving your enemy and, and you know, walking the extra mile and turning the other cheek. Those are all good things. Learn them in Sunday school. Here's what Paul says. He goes, I'm going to explain to you now how you can live this out in your marriage, in your home. So he writes a letter to this church at Ephesus. And in chapter 5, he says this. He goes right back to Genesis chapter 2 the beginning of marriage. He says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So he's quoting about the first marriage, and then he goes, this is a profound, <laughs> profound mystery. Now, if you've been married for any length of time, there are nights when you go to bed and you say, Amen, brother, this is one profound mystery I have found myself in. 
But the word that Paul uses for mystery here, this Greek word mysterion, it has a meaning that also includes the idea of a secret. In the Bible, the word is used not because not to say something's hidden, but to rather say it's something wondrous and it's an unlooked-for truth. And so what's the secret? Paul's in a sense saying, I, you know, I, I, you need to understand this. I, I'm telling you the secret to marriage. He says it's a profound mystery. And here it is. He goes, I'm talking about Christ in the church. There's a secret to marriage. Got it? See you next week. <laughs> Paul says, you want to know the secret to marriage? It's not what you think. The whole thing is about Christ in the church. So here's what he's referring to. He had just said it a, a, a couple of sentences before. He says, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. Now, if you've been around the church for a long time or you've gone to any weddings, I know you've heard that before, but I need you to hear it with fresh ears this morning because when Paul wrote these words, they were absolutely groundbreaking. I have, uh, I have many of you know I have four kids, and they have stumbled upon the thing that everybody does now when you say something to them. They go, wait, What? I don't know where this whole wait what thing came from, um, but this was a wait what moment for Paul's audience. Do you know why? Because in the culture to, to which he was writing, that was not the expectation for men. Women were not things that you cherish like your own body. Women were, for the most part, things that you possessed. You might have several. Women like children were to be seen and not heard. Women had no rights, no education, no power, no privilege, no honor, no place at the table. And here comes Paul, and he takes everything that Jesus had taught about the priority of love and relationships. And he goes, oh, by the way, stop studying the theology and start applying it. Here's how it works in your home, guys. This is the deal. Remember what Jesus did for you? Now you go and do it for her. Stop treating your wife like she's lesser and start treating her as an equal. Mind-blowing in the first century. First Peter goes on to say something very similar. Husbands, in the same way, be considered as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect. Respect. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. They're both saying your wife is as valuable as you are. Your joint heirs in the grace of Christ. Your brothers and sisters in Christ. You need to rethink the way that marriage, what you're thinking about when you go into marriage. Because what men thought about marriage in those days, you want to know what men thought about marriage? You know what they thought they were getting marriage in those days? The exact same thing they think they're getting today. I mean, gentlemen, we do this. We have unrealistic and just plain old wrong motivations and expectation when it comes to our wives. Ladies, I'm going to get to you in a minute, so sit tight. <laughs> well, you know, we want good food and a clean house and good looks and a pleasant attitude and, you know, fix yourself up a little before I come home from work and, uh, you know, professional child care and passionate nights and, you know, we have a whole list of things. And when we don't get them, 
When the two or three or four kids you made her bear do something to the shape of her body, when the two, three, or four kids that you made her bear wear out her soul over the course of the day, somehow what burns inside of us, because it burns inside of me sometimes because it's my brokenness, is this isn't what I signed up for. If you've ever been to a wedding, I almost always go to this verse because it's controversial, but it just sits at the heart. See, I, many of you know I've told this story many times. I went to see my pop-pop right before I got married. This is kind of a... World War II tough guy, and I said, Pop, I'm getting married, you know, give me, uh, give me your advice, how, 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 how am I going to make this marriage last? And he looked at me, and, you know, smoke filling the air, and he says, Johnny, I'll give you the secret, it's very easy. Everything has got to be done 50-50, that's the secret to a good marriage. That is the worst marriage advice anybody ever gave anybody in the history of marriage, right? I gave my 50-50, my 50 a long time ago. See, here's what Paul says. Put the, would you put it back up, Maggie? Paul says this. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her back to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And man, I, I get convicted when I, I, I read that because sometimes I think I'm, I, can, I have a propensity to treat my wife like a rental car. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like, I can really beat the crap out of this thing and hand it back because it's not mine. And the word says, God says, no, husband, you need to rethink this. You need to rethink you're to give this back in better condition. You are to bring it into its full radiance. In other words, you, you got her, and, and, and I've lent you my, my daughter, and I have an expectation that you are going to lay your life down in such a fashion the way Christ did for the church that she will come into full bloom and radiance. Not that you'll squash her and hand her back used. It's a powerful, powerful teaching. Paul says, guys, let me show you something. This has to be the expectation when you get married. I'm going to die. I'm going to lay my life down. I am willing to cash out of my dreams and my hopes and walk through deep levels of pain, just like Jesus did, in order that I might bring you to your full glory. And I'm willing to do it despite what you look like, despite how much weight you've gained, despite how many baggy pairs of sweatpants you wear, or how tired you may be. I am going to bring you to into full radiance. Return you back to God. Return you back to your Father in heaven better than the way I got you. What Paul and Peter were doing for husbands is telling them, this is how all these teachings about Jesus and love, this is how it works itself out. This is radical, but it applies to your home. Now, ladies, Paul goes on. Paul has the essentially the same teaching for wives in this relationship. You know it, you hate it. But it's a famous verse, it's just not a very well-loved verse. It's in the same passage, Ephesians 5, 22 to 24. Wives, submit, Joni, you listen to this? Wives, <laughs> wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as you do to the Lord. See, right away, you, you, right, do you hear me? Joni, we're, we're, this is a mess. 
Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body. See, that should sound familiar about how the husbands were supposed to be treating their wives, like Christ loved the church. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now here's the deal. You and I know that this verse has been abused like crazy by men over generations, but you have to understand the point of what Paul's trying to say here. He's saying in this marital relationship, in fact, it's not just limited to this. We'll get over it in the next few weeks. In every relationship, especially family ones, in every relationship of what makes a relationship a Christian relationship is not because not because you pray together. It's not because you said certain vows or you believe certain things together. The thing that makes a relationship a Christian relationship is mutual submission out of the reverence for Jesus Christ. Anybody can say vows. You know what verse comes before verse 22? Anybody? Verse 21 is the answer, but. (laughs) See, that's the deal. Paul's just taking this concept for women and he's putting it into an overall picture of what Christian relationships look like. Gentlemen, we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands. And you know what? Husbands, submit to your wives. And kids, submit to your parents. And daughter-in-laws, submit to your mother-in-laws. Not because they deserve it. Not because they've earned it. Paul says you do this out of reverence because you revere, you hold glorious the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am doing this, I'm submitting to you in this relationship, not because you earned it, not because it feels good, but because I understand I revere what God did for me and I am going to replicate that into this relationship. This is the key. Because this is what Christ did for us. Many of, you, many of you know what the book of Ephesians later says. Talks about Jesus. Tell me if this doesn't sound familiar about what he's talking about in marriage. This is Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing. And he took on the very nature of a servant. And being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And he became obedient to death even death on a cross. The secret to marriage is this. It was never meant to be about you getting all of your needs met. It was meant to be a reflection of the gospel of Jesus Christ where you are choosing submission and yielding and forgiveness and accepting the cost of it. Jesus gives himself up for us. Jesus, the Son of God, though he's equal with the Father, gives up his glory. He takes on human nature. He willingly goes to the cross and pays the penalty for our sins. He takes away our guilt and condemnation so that we can be, because when this happens, when one does this with what Jesus has done for us, what does it allow us to do? What does it allow us to do? It unites us with him. He gave up his glory and power. He becomes a servant. He died to his own interests. And he he looked to our needs and our interests and said, Jesus' sacrifice it's the key to not, not just understanding marriage, but to living it. This is why, this is really profound here. This is why, this is some of, from, some of the stuff from Keller's book here. This is why he's able to tie the original statement about marriage in Genesis 2, this Adam-Eve moment, 
to Jesus and Jesus and his church. One commentator put it this way. Paul, when he was writing the New Testament, saw that when God designed the original marriage, he already had Christ and the church in mind. This is one of the great purposes of marriage, to picture the relationship between Christ and his redeemed people forever. If God had the gospel of Jesus' salvation in mind when he established marriage, then he, he, this is profound. If you get nothing out of this, this is the one takeaway, right? If God had the gospel of Jesus' salvation in mind when he established marriage, then marriage only works to the degree that approximates the pattern of God's self-giving love in Christ. That's when marriage works. Paul says, you want to start somewhere? Do this. Do for your spouse what God did for you and Jesus, and the rest will follow. That's the secret. The gospel of Jesus and marriage, they explain one another. When God invented marriage, he had already had the saving work of Jesus in mind. And so here's the deal with your marriage. You, in your marriage, you either reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ with grace and forgiveness and submission. You reflect that or your other choice is you just reflect the brokenness and the corruption and the greed and the selfishness of the world. Because your marriage is a picture of something. You choose. Now let me make this incredibly practical. Is there an elephant in your marriage? These things are hard to talk about. I know that. Trust me, Joan and I know that. It's hard for us to talk about these things. We were reading an article this week. It said that how so many of us can go out and talk about our sex lives to other people, but we, it's so hard to talk about that between a husband and a wife. So let's make it incredibly practical. I don't know if the elephant is money or work or sex or kids. I know these things get built up over time. I know they're really hard to deal with. And I know when these walls that we build come down, they can be painful. But here's how you apply it to your elephant. This is, this is what the Bible says, okay? This is what the Bible says about Jesus. He said, the Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still, while we were yet sinners, while we had done nothing to deserve it, while maybe he has not stopped his spending, maybe she hasn't lost her weight, maybe he didn't clean up, while they may not have asked for forgiveness, while they might not have said, I'm sorry, because while in many ways we were still repulsive and bathed in sin and mess, God demonstrated his love for us by coming after you. And that's your call. That's the practicality. I could teach you how to manage your finances. We're probably going to touch on it. I can tell you to have date nights. You know you should. Husbands, wives, while he still sits on the couch way too much, while she continues to have to buy more and more shoes, while things have gone cold, we haven't touched each other in months, while there is stuff here that is separating us from each other, you go to him anyway. Because while, while we were still sinners, Christ came for us. Husbands, you go to her anyway. Wives, you go to him anyway. I understand it's awkward. I understand it's not easy. You, like Christ, leave the comfort of your silence and your kingdom and you humble yourself and you take on the nature of a servant and you go to each other and you offer grace and forgiveness and yourself. Not because you have to or you want to or you need to or because they deserve it. You go out of reverence for Christ. 
because you revere the gospel of Jesus and you want, you perform the key to marriage. You serve him or you serve her in each of these areas where there are elephants. Now I know, I know there's arguments. Oh, no, no, no. I can't do that. I can't do that. I mean, I mean if I do that, right, that's going to cost me something. You see, if I, if I start doing the dishes or helping out with the kids, she's going to expect me to do that tomorrow. I don't really want to do that, so I'm not going to do it today. Let me explain something to you. The gospel always costs something. It costs Jesus' life. If you're going to get married and you're going to have a, a Christian marriage, it will cost you something. I know what you might be fearing. You might say, well, what if I move towards him? What if I come towards her and, and I, I try to reach out and, and, and deal with these things? What if I'm not accepted? What if I'm rejected? What if, they don't, what if they don't believe? What if they don't trust? Jesus goes, yeah, I know. Welcome to my world. I came anyway. What if I do it and they abuse it? What if, I, what if I'm taken advantage of? Jesus says, there's no doubt that might happen. What if he keeps spending irresponsibly? What if she keeps dumping the kids on me? That might happen. But there is a bigger principle at foot here. Paul says, I'm not teaching you about what's fair. I'm teaching you about how you were made and what will actually bring you joy. Because you've tried the me-based marriage. You've tried the soulmate thing, and it always fails. Now try this. Band, come on up. Now try this. Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wives, submit to your husbands out of reverence for Christ. And while they were yet sinners, go to each other, pursue one another, overcome your fears and your objections because if you do, because if you do, listen to me, it's not too late. Just like there was for Jesus, there is life waiting for your relationship on the other side of this. It's not too late. Those of you who are thinking about getting married, I was talking to somebody recently about getting married. They didn't know each other really well when we were talking about this. And I said, well, why do you want to do that? And they said, well, because I want to get on with my life. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. You're going the wrong way with that. Uh, you just immediately told me that the, you, this is all a me-based marriage. Change the way you think about this. Become Christ to each other. Choose servanthood. Get life. Lord, may we know the truth. And in these difficult places in our marriage, the places where we don't want to talk about it, may we know the truth. And in doing so, may the truth set us free.